at Arnold Organic, we know that when we take care of the earth, the earth also takes care of us. You'd be surprised by our environmentally friendly way of baking breads. Our ingredients are farmed per strict USDA organic standards that make the soil richer and promote biodiversity. Our bakeries are powered by renewable wind energy, and we donate 1% of our revenues to environmental causes as members of 1% for the planet, so that future generations can flourish too. Arnold Organic Bread, great taste that's sustainably baked. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Hello. 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 Uh, We are sponsored by The Athletic. Isn't that exciting? The Athletic is the best place to read about football online and you can find out more with a 30-day free trial by visiting www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And you also get 50% off your annual sign-up. So that makes it 8p a day. Very, very cheap. We'll talk about them more later. Today, oh, incidentally, uh, there's a few sort of uh, things that regular listeners might be interested in hearing about now. If you don't care and you just want to get to the bit where we answer your questions about tactics and football, skip forward a bit, I don't know, a few minutes, and, uh, you know, ignore all of this. Uh, but we did our first TIFO quiz the other day. Yes? We did. I'm looking at Alex too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was very exciting. We enjoyed that, didn't we? I had a lot of fun. Yes. Thanks to everyone who came down. That was really appreciated. It was a pa- it was packed out to the rafters, i.e. all the tables were full. So that's nice. Mm. And uh, the winning team... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're sponsored by The Athletic. The winning team, there was no fix. They're just smart guys. But the winning team came from The Athletic. So congratulations to Michael Cox and his team. And the second place team was from Totally Football. Congratulations to those guys. Excellent podcasts. Do go and listen to them. And the third place team was Mundial, the fantastic magazine. We did invite normal people as well, but you're just not as clever as the professionals. So next time we won't invite them and it'll be a more even. Do you know what? The score-wise was very interesting. We were talking about this afterwards, how hard it's difficult to gauge how hard it is. But... The athletic team only, I think they got 70 out of 85. 70 and a half out of 84. Right. But the first placed non-professional team got high 40s. Oh, no, no. I think higher than that. Was it? Yeah, a little bit higher. Yeah, I think there was a there was a cluster of about five or six teams that were within three points of each other around sort of 45 to 48. But then there were two or three um the offside sports photography team. Professionals, though. They don't count. Um, John McKenzie's team. I, I, would, I would call John McKenzie a professional freelance writer. Doesn't no, count. I mean, he is that, isn't he? So but. the first placed non professional team was the sixth placed team, and I think they got 48 or something. Okay. Yeah, no, that's so for reasonable. normal people. It was, it was a really hard quiz. It was yeah. hard. It's good yeah. for us to know that, though. And other than that, oh, you might remember that a few months ago, my mother. Uh, asked you to give her lots of money because she was doing a sponsored marathon walk five years after her cancer remission. I think she's five. I can't remember. Five years into She's fine. But she did it the other day, which I think is very impressive. Uh, It took her, I think she left at four in the morning with her friend and then got home sometime sort of late afternoon. And she was in some pain for part of the walk. But weirdly enough, when I called her, she was home, laughing away, no pain, still had her boots on. Imagine that. Do you know when you go on a very long walk... literally the first thing I would do is take those off. Take them off? Yeah. The woman doesn't seem to be any pain. I called her the next couple of days. Has it happened yet? Has the pain happened yet? Mm. No, no pain. What's wrong with you, woman? There's something wrong with you. But uh, maybe she's just, you know, extra healthy. But she would like me to reiterate, and I would like to reiterate how uh, grateful we are for all of you who did actually um, support us as well, because there were a lot of people who contributed, and uh, that was very, very kind of you. So thank you again very, very much for that. And uh, some people are walking past the office there, you can see them. It, what's interesting, also, you might recognise this over the next few weeks, is that we have been very lucky over the last year to work in an office environment where we have few neighbours. But uh, we have new neighbours now, and there are lots of them, and they're loud. Not louder than normal people. But they're just, it's I think louder they are than it louder was. than normal people. It's louder than it was. Do you know what it's like? Everyone's enthusiastic. They want to talk about work and have phone calls outside my door. And they're going to care. I don't understand this. I don't understand enthusiasm. 
Well, anyway, that I think have we got anything else to talk about that is nope, no. Okay. Oh, one more thing. Uh, we are trying. We have learnt new mic technique. So it's gonna. Be, I might fuck it up today. We're we're a lot closer. If you're watching, you'll see that we're a lot closer. We're trying to reduce the ambient level and also uh, break through on the tube. That's the thing. If you live in London or in a city where there is an underground, you will know how loud those trains are. Trying to hear a podcast on there is very difficult. So it it give us a, it might you know a couple of weeks settle in. I can see that we're peaking already, but we're we're learning. I'm going to get increasingly annoyed by this. Alex doesn't have any patience. Uh, today's episode is about uh, questions, answers, tactics, questions. It's that enthusiasm thing again, isn't it? Today's episode, we're answering questions asked by the community. Uh, and the first question comes from Rahul Soandani. Rahul says... Could you explain about Sheffield United's overlapping centre-backs? Now, Rule, we did answer this question when Michael Cox was on the podcast. Michael Cox answered the question, but uh, clearly some of you did not hear that. So, Alex, just very briefly, because some people will have listened to this already. Yeah, um, so basically, Sheffield United play three defenders at the back as centre-backs, and the essential premise is that the two outside centre-backs will move wider... And then the wing-backs who play outside them will tuck inside. Uh, The reason this was developed, I think, was largely because in the championship, there are a lot of teams that sit back, kind of pack the area around the box. And Chris Wilder, who's a very smart tactician, was looking for ways to overload those defences, to stretch them and maybe pull a full-back out of position for someone to make a, a run inside. And by getting your centre-backs to do that, and and they have players of the profile that that are capable of doing it, it means that you're creating confusion for the opposition because the full-backs pushing outside and they're thinking, all right, do I mark my opposite man who's coming in or do I mark this centre-back who's galloping into space uh, out wide? Now, those centre-backs can cross the ball well, they can add dynamism, they can give Sheffield United the opportunity to, to, to create these overloads out wide, which means that their midfield can be a bit more narrow and create passes more from sort of the inside the, the half spaces. This is something that Norwood does particularly. And also you see these driving runs from the wing-backs coming in with the, 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 the centre-backs outside. So that's, I mean, that's essentially all it is. It, it, it's one of these tactical concepts which in in explanation is an awful lot simpler than it is in execution because in execution it requires you asking players who aren't necessarily used to doing something to do it and it requires players with a very specific skill set to be able to. But it's not a complex idea to explain and hopefully once you get your head around it, you, you know, it, it, kind of, it makes sense. What's quite interesting to note is that um, Bournemouth, when Bournemouth played Sheffield United, they also played three at the back and, and that's not normal for Bournemouth. They, they usually play four and that's that was sort of partly to counter this. And also Bournemouth's own centre-backs, Nathan Ake particularly, seem like the sort of player that might be able to do this. So it's entirely possible and uh, players like Chiellini at Juventus will carry the ball forwards and sometimes find themselves into wide, in wide positions. So the way Wilder's done it is an innovation, but there are definitely players for other clubs who have the skill set to be able to do this, and it might be something that we see teams doing a little bit more. Okay, Raul, I hope that uh, satisfies your desire for knowledge. João Miguel Texera, what do you guys think about the rise of Portuguese football? What do you think? Uh, so I spoke to Tiago Estavao, who is a guy that we know who's done some... I prefer to call him Estevez. Well, that's but that's not his name. Not saying it is. I just I okay. like to call him Tiago Estevez, and I would prefer if uh, ever on this podcast we did say his name wrong. Right. Okay, okay. so Tiago Estevez, mm-hmm. he uh, is a professional scout. He is no. Portuguese. No, no, no he's he, not. What? I'm just trying to invert all the facts about him. We live in a post-truth world. Okay. Let me have my fun. Um, and uh, he's done some videos for us on Portuguese football. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. 
on top of asking me to learn a new mic technique, you're also being no. particularly tricky today, aren't you? I'm having a nice time. Something got into you. You're yeah. a little more pepped than usual. Got a little bee in my bonnet, in a good way. Okay, excellent. Um, so essentially what Tiago says is that um, there is a... Overall, there's a lack of money in Portuguese football. And therefore... Yes. The investment in academies is a sensible way of ameliorating that because it, it's cheaper ultimately to, to put money into an academy system that might yield four or five good players each season rather than to go out and try and spend a lot of money on other players. It's also why, or it's one of two reasons why Portuguese clubs often look for undervalued Brazilian players, partly because they're cheaper and also partly because moving from Brazil to Portugal is kind of socially a lot easier. It's the access to Europe. It, it's the access to Europe, the but obviously access. They, they speak the same language, so there's mm. much less of a barrier to entry there. Um, also, what that means is that clubs not only don't have to spend a lot of money recruiting players that are a bit older and have maybe proven themselves, but it also becomes a really good source of revenue for those clubs when they then sell those players on to other European sides. Um, it's also, it, you know, football is just very important in Portuguese culture. And they take it very, very seriously, and they, you know, they work hard to develop young kids. Um, interestingly, I asked him whether he felt there was a, a particular kind of prestige associated with youth coaching. And I know, for example, in uh, in the Balkans, for example, you know, good youth coaches are really highly valued, and sometimes that actually doesn't translate into senior coaching. According to Tiago, not so much necessarily. Some coaches will see youth coaching as a role into you know larger professional coaching for big teams others very happy to be youth coaches and, and stay at that level so it doesn't necessarily mean that they're looking for depends you whether know, you like kids if you like kids you might want to carry on working with kids you don't like kids yeah you're going to want to work with adults aren't you yeah but basically and that's what i've told my partner who is a primary school teacher you know i've said if you like if you like kids you might want to keep working with, if you don't like kids, maybe you don't work in a school. She does like kids, so it, she's fine. But I recognize, I take the point because I've had that conflict personally as well about whether or not you like kids. Do you want to work with kids? It's a question. It's a question you have to answer before you decide whether or not you want to work with kids, isn't it? Whether you like them or whether you like, do you prefer adults? Do you maybe like teenagers? What about elderly people? You can work with elderly people in uh, care homes walking football walking football you could work in hospices there's it depends you, maybe you don't like people at all you want to work in the RSPCA for uh, people who don't live in the UK that's a big charity that helps animals you might want animals plants horticulture what I'm saying is that in answer to uh, Joao's question what you really want to do is think about what you like and then that's, you'll know that's better not what his question you'll was. know better what kind of uh, child you want to work with or plant right. The actual answer to Zhao's question is no. that Portuguese football has worked out a way of maximizing the return on investment uh, of players and uh, because of financial constraints, not invested heavily in acquiring players who are already developed. How is that different to what I just said? I don't, I don't understand. You started talking about horticulture. Joao, thank you so much for that question. I hope um, I have helped you. Uh, Simone Vanzolini, football books to read. More on the tactical side rather than the biographies. Smiley face, thanks, exclamation mark. This is, we get this one quite a lot. Uh, we've, we've mentioned, I tell you what, um, Simone or Simone, uh, if you look back through our podcasts, you will see other kind of tactical uh, questions answered or, uh, you know, Q&A podcasts. I'm pretty sure every single one of them has a question about books. Alex has listed off loads. Alex, do you have any new books to add to that list? Um, I think the two things to note are, I mean, there's obviously... Wilson's stuff, Michael Cox's stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a guy who's a coach who's written quite extensively uh, and his books are largely available through Amazon. He's called Ray Power, as in, you know, the, yeah. He sounds like a kitchen cleaner product. Right, or possibly a superhero. Anyway, yes. Ray Power, his his stuff is really, really good and it's, it's even more practical than, than Cox and Wilson are more about the history of tactics and the development of tactics. Power is more about how you actually then put those things into practice and, and coach them. Um, there's also quite a lot of good stuff on Twitter. Um, there are, there are coaches that are making things available, uh, on Twitter and sometimes they're using kind of, you know, graphical markup stuff. So 
it's probably worth having a scout around and having a look for that sort of stuff. I will also, and I know this is perhaps slightly uh, company man <clears throat> stuff, but um, the Bundesliga's uh, website is actually really, really good for tactical analysis of players. And we, we make videos for them that are tactical in nature, but they have a lot of stuff on their site that explains the tactics of players in that league as well. So that's a really good starting point for things. Mm. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy those books. Simone, Simone. Sanya Solanke, which of the non-top six sides in the Premier League can achieve the most this season and why? We have two different answers to this question. Do we not, Alex? Uh, we do, and I assume on the basis of top six sides, you know, we're we're talking about the traditional top six: so Newcastle, Aston Villa, Everton. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess the answer to this is predicated on what achievement looks like, and I would say the straightforward answer to that question is Leicester City. Um, obviously, uh, before the season began, I think people were looking at Wolves, Watford and Leicester as being three of the sides that could really push on and possibly challenge the hegemony of the top six. Good start for Leicester. Leicester have started really brightly. Uh, James Madison obviously has been great. Wilfred Ndidi is a fantastic midfielder. Harvey Barnes looks really exciting. Jamie Vardy still scoring goals. Um, but the other teams have kind of fallen off quite drastically Watford obviously have replaced their manager so you know there's going to be a period of upheaval there Wolves I think are chugging along but they're probably not performing as well as people would have expected and there are reasons for that yeah they had a very very small squad last season um so I think Leicester are the side to watch in terms of of doing well and possibly breaking into that under Brendan Rodgers I think it's also worth noting that if you are certain of the sides outside the top six, and I would refer here particularly to the newly promoted teams, your version of success is very, very different to what Leicester's version of success is. Like beating Manchester City, for example. Like beating Manchester City, for example. Hot dog. Taking a scalp. Because actually, you know, in that regard, the the morale boost there, the the kind of the the confidence to play your style that saw you promoted from the championship. Obviously, we're talking about Norwich City here in case anyone doesn't realise. Um, to be able to carry that emphatically into a team uh, as good as Manchester City are and take a victory on that, that that will be massive for them in terms of how they then see the rest of the season unfolding. So, I mean, we talked about this um, in podcasts over the summer. We talked about it last season. Norwich clearly looked to be the best of the newly promoted sides in terms of their chances of staying up. And can we say as well that defensively they were excellent? Right. And, and that's the thing that people have been saying was going to be, you know, potentially the reason yeah, for any I think troubles. People were looking at, you know, Norwich games as being sort of, you know, if they might win 5-3 or something. Whereas but actually, now they're talking about what Norwich did. I mean, look, I think this was Ian Wright or Alan Shearer on Match of the Day who were talking about what Norwich <laughs> did, who were talking about what Norwich did as a potential uh, blueprint for other clubs to follow as a way to beat Manchester City. I mean, and I think the ma- main idea was playing very narrow and letting the wide players have their space. They, You know what? That episode of Match of the Day, it, can you call it an episode? That show? Yeah. It was very interesting. Did you watch it? No. They, they did a really interesting thing that you could see their their uh, their process, how they got there. Uh, and they talked us through it and, and, and they noticed what Norwich were doing. They noticed that they were allowing Manchester City to have the ball in wide areas, to not play through the middle because they were so narrow. The fullbacks were in line with the penalty area lines. So they were, you know, the whole swathes of the pitch were um, made available to City. They made more crosses in this game than they have done. It was it's something like in under Guardiola. I think it's the most crosses they've made. And then they looked at other games in which Guardiola has made, teams have made a lot of crosses for Manchester City and they've lost or drawn the top six. Mm. And so I thought it was very interesting. Well, it is. I mean, it, it's an interesting inference to draw because if you look at a team like Manchester City, they are not a side who particularly want deeper crosses. They do look to cross the ball, but they look to cross the ball low pulled back from positions and quite I, I close like to, to the six-yard box. Like, uh, or, or, yeah, or, it's not necessarily more directly to a person, but you, you're putting it into an area where you're pulling it back to someone who, who's there. I yeah. think that's different to a cross. And, and I think crosses almost have the implication of height as well to a degree. And at height as well, but also that you are putting it into an area where someone should be. Yeah. I think those Manchester City pullbacks from near the, from near the goal line 
uh, to back to the edge of the box. There's always somebody, someone's job is to be there. So I think at that point it stops becoming, it stops being a cross yeah. and it's a pass. Okay, I, I, I see what you mean by that. Um, I, I mean, I think data providers would, would probably count them as crosses. But yeah. by the by, I think the, the point being... Well, they're that wrong. <laughs> if, you, if you force a team that is well-drilled to play a certain style to change that style... You know, it is always the Achilles heel of very, very good and dominant teams is that they are so rarely challenged that they often find it tricky to adapt. And that's why teams that are domestically extremely dominant can sometimes fall down in Europe for exactly that same reason, because people are posing them questions in European competitions that they don't get asked in their domestic leagues. So it makes sense. Unsettle them. You know, it's Daniel Farker is an extremely good manager. He's a very, very smart guy. The setup of that club is very, very smart. And and they've obviously gone into that game with a great deal of preparation. Bodes well for the rest of the season, I think. Hey, here's hoping. Theodore Anderson. Opinion on the current state of La Masia and any opinions on uh, Fatih, Puig and Alenia and how they can be incorporated into the first team. So... Listen to the podcast that we recorded with Simon Harrison about a month ago. We talked extensively about La Masia and some of these players. I will also say that we are in the middle of releasing a three-part mini-series on La Masia. First part is out already. That is the history of the uh, the whole academy. The second part, sorry, that's noise. The second part, uh, actually, will probably be, be released by the time you listen to this. The second part is uh, about the problems that La Masia has encountered, staffing and players and opportunities in the first team mainly over the last sort of 10, 15 years since uh, Guardiola's tiki-taka generation. So I guess we're talking 10 years. Um, that's quite extensive because there are a lot of things to talk about. The third is will be out next week, and that is a list of players who have left the academy. Um, and, the, you know... The implication being that they have left for the reasons of the problems that we discussed in the second piece. So I won't go into too much uh, detail on it now, or I won't go into any detail on it now. But do watch those videos, Theodore, and uh, listen back to the Simon Harrison La Liga. Uh, it was a La Liga Sensible Transfers episode, um, because at the end of that, Simon talks about uh, La Masia for quite a long time. Comic 215, uh, Newcastle has a stage where almost all of their foreign players were French. How did that happen and what was the connection? Um, This is interesting and it gives us the opportunity to say that this is an advert. We are supported by The Athletic. Do visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO to receive a 30-day free trial and 50% off your annual subscription. Here's why you should do that. Because there was a piece written by Chris Waugh entitled £1 million in appearance. Save, the Newcastle midfielder who doesn't play football. Uh, it's really interesting. We're actually turning this into a video. So if you l- watch out later this week, you'll be able to see this one in video form. But this is a good indication of the sort of thing that uh, The Athletic is covering. Chris Wall mainly writes about Newcastle as well. So you've got local dedicated journalists right there. And the story essentially is of this player, uh, Save. What is his full name? Uh, Henri Save. Henri Save, who joined about three years ago, and he's played a total of about eight games for them. He's been on loan a few times. He's not on loan at the moment, but he's also not in Steve Bruce's squad, so I think he's just sitting there. He earns £32,000 a week. According to everyone who knows him, he's a lovely, and it's not it's not one of those stories where the player doesn't want to play and is happy to just sit around and earn his money. He, he couldn't go on loan this year. The, uh, Chris says that he is a free-kick specialist who perhaps doesn't have quite what it takes to be a midfield engine in the Premier League. So I think it was unusual because in one of his first games for Newcastle, he scored an incredible free kick and then wasn't played again. And mm. some of the fans didn't really understand why. According to Chris, that is why. Um, but the article also does go on to talk about um, Graham Carr, who is the chief scout um, who boasted extensive French contacts and has been a long-term admirer of uh, Survey, for example. So there's a lot to learn about that. I would encourage the writer of the question, whose name was Comic215, to uh, take us up on our sign-up offer and um, read Chris's writing because it's very interesting and there's a lot of stuff which relates directly to your question. Do you have anything to add or should we move on? I would move on. Uh, and that is www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, 50% off an annual subscription. That works out at 8p a day or £2.50 a month. It really is worth it. Andreas Dasaklis. Da, da Andreas Dasaklis. Sorry, Andreas. Could you name some teams that are likely to surprise in this year's Champions League group stage? I couldn't, but I'm hoping that Alex can. 
Um, yeah, and I'm wondering. I could try. I'm wondering from whether Andreas is well from Andreas's name whether he wants me to say Olympiakos um, because Olympiakos are probably one of the answers to that question that you might give. How do you get that from his name? Because I think it's a Greek name. Oh. And they're a Greek team. I think you're making quite a lot of assumptions. Well, maybe I am. I've maybe got I'll an Irish drunk. name. Do you think I want Shamrock Rovers to do well? I do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're clearly a good side. Um, uh, I think... Olympiakos. Yeah, probably the, the two answers I would look for. And, and it's always a slight cheat because now the first set of group stage games have happened, you know, that you've got results to look at. So it's less of a surprise than if you'd asked me beforehand. Uh-huh. Um, it is, I think it is very likely that uh, he asked the question before. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, I'm saying, but I'm not having a dig at him. I'm saying sounds like you, It sounds like you're having a go at Andreas. I'm saying we're cheating by already knowing a set of results. I think uh, PSG are going to win the game. Uh, did you see Bale's ruled out goal? No. It's not the sort of thing we talk about on this podcast, but just thought it was good and shouldn't have been ruled out. Great. Okay. Um, yeah, so the answer, if you'd asked me before, I would have said Red Bull Salzburg, which I'm going to say anyway, um, because of Haaland. We, we can't partly. take you seriously now. No, but this is the Didn't point. Didn't they win 6-2? Yes. You can't, no, 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 you can't say that. But this is my point, is that by... You're like one of those guys who said that he came up with the idea for a computer before the computer. I didn't. I'm not that old. You, you, you're like one of those guys that said that you you had like the whole, you know, Star Wars was stolen from you by George Lucas. I know somebody who thought they'd invented the spice rack. <laughs> what's what's a, oh, a spice rack in the kitchen? Yeah, as in, <laughs> wouldn't it be amazing if you had well, sort of like a shelf where you could put all of your spices they together? Invented so they invented a shelf. Were, right. Great work. Um, who was that? Do dox them. Give I'm them their full gonna, name I'm and address. What was their first I'm not name? Say Jess. Jess. Yeah. Anyway, the other one, which I I have to say I wouldn't have said, um, is Dinamo Zagreb. I don't know anything about Dinamo Zagreb or or didn't before I had a quick look at them. But Atalanta were a team that I thought would be really interesting in the Champions League and good to watch. They were great in Serie A last season. Uh, and they got beaten 4-0 by Dinamo Zagreb. Um, and what's quite interesting about them is they've got Danny Olmo, who is a, a Spanish winger who a lot of kind of football hipster slash football manager types will know about already. Um, but they've also got, and I'm looking at my computer here, so I hope I'm maintaining microphone integrity. Mic technique, mic technique. Um, there is a... Uh, right back called uh, Stojanovic and there's an attacking midfielder called Lovro Maya and they both look like they're really quite interesting players so I don't know the you know you we know the Balkans as an area that produces a lot of really interesting young talent that this Dinamo Zagreb team kind of has the feel of someone that that might do not necessarily fantastically but do well enough on a big stage to have that team subsequently picked apart by you know other sides who swoop in with lots of money and oh. buy all their good players mm. vultures yeah yeah okay. i would have thought genk might be all right but they didn't they didn't do all that well so they didn't seem to did they no uh ubx where did chelsea's youngsters rank alongside europe's best under 21 players okay really really hard question to answer because mm. obviously we're right at the beginning of a season. A lot of young players don't actually start that many games. They tend to be used more as players off the bench, trying to give them experience and so on. So Chelsea and arguably Man United are in kind of slightly more unusual situations. At yeah, the absolutely. So isn't it nice though? I think. I mean, I really like it. I think it's yeah. fantastic, and I, th- I think actually, I've, I think it's really nice. I never wanted to watch Chelsea before, but I do now because I like. Uh, kids, like we talked about before, working with them, watching them play football. I'm just saying I like I like it when yeah. kids play football. No, that's great. Um, so I think there were a lot of people that were quite down on the Lampard appointment. I think there were good reasons for that because Derby were arguably lucky to perform how they did in the championship. But he's, you know, he's not come in and made an incredible team overnight. But what he has done is produced quite exciting attacking football and you know, given a lot of 
these younger players their chance, particularly Tammy Abraham, who's someone we've been a fan of on the podcast for a while. In answer specifically oh, to the question... Uh, I would prefer if we refer to him as Tamab from now on. So among players in Europe's top five leagues, uh, he who are 22 or younger, Abraham has scored the most goals in leagues. So he is clearly like right at the top of the pile there. Mm. Um, the I, only I really things... like that as well because we said that in a video yeah. and then people poo-pooed it. And I love it when they poo-poo it and then it works out that they're wrong. Yeah, I love it so much. I mean, I didn't even say that. Someone else, did you say or did Blair say that? Who did the Chelsea video? Uh, it was one of you. It was either yeah, you or Blair. Yeah, it was either me or Blair. I and can't remember. We, and we said that, uh, they, that Tammy Abraham had what it takes. And yeah. people said, look at But we've, we've said that consistently in the podcast. And um, yeah, anyway. Um, I think it's also worth noting that in terms of... Uh, that was a bit bitter, wasn't it? <laughs> in terms of expected assists per 90... Um, and per 90 is generally more useful here when you're talking about younger players because, like I say, they, they may be used as subs to get game time rather than starting games. But uh, Christian Pulisic and Mason Mount are both in the top 30 uh, for expected assists per 90. How old is Christian Pulisic? Though? I feel like he's been around for He has been around years. for 100 years, but he's only 21. That's crazy. Yep. Um, and Pulisic is also top 30 for key passes. Can I ask about Christian Pulisic? Do we know him because he's the American that played for Dortmund? Or do we know him, have we known him for that long because he deserves it? So when he had his breakout season at Dortmund, it is comparable to Jadon Sancho last season, although not quite as emphatic in terms of output. Okay. So it's not, it's not simply that he's American. That and helps. I think it genuinely does help in terms of the amount of coverage and so on. But he yeah. is a player who, I mean, he's he's not Jadon Sancho. I, I mean, you know, Jadon Sancho is, is one of the best players or is going to be one of the best players in the world and is getting quite close to that already, I think. But um, Pulisic certainly is not getting plaudits simply because of his nationality and being one of the very few mm. kind of good attacking players out of America. He, you know, he he's the real deal. I think he he stalled a lot at, at Dortmund last season because they have so many players that can play in, in those wide attacking positions. Uh -huh. People as well like Jakob Brun Larsson coming through. And I think as well that they, you know, if, if he'd stayed there he probably would have disappeared because they've invested even more in those positions with people like Torgan Hazard. So the move to Chelsea for him, I think, is is a good one because he can settle in there and he can become really quite a dominant player for them. Um, so yeah, short answer to the question is it's a really, really difficult thing to assess, but I do feel like some of these guys, particularly Tammy Abraham, stand comparison with the best young players in Europe. Yes, absolutely. Okay, good to know. I hope, UBX, that that answered your question. Jamal Jones, can you please explain the number formation system? As in, when we talk about a player functioning as a six, what exactly does that entail? Can I take the first half of this? It used to just be shirt numbers, man. That's right, isn't it? It was shirt numbers. Yeah, shirt numbers that are different depending on what country you're in. Yes, okay. But in the UK, the number six was often the defensive midfielder. So when we talk about a number... That is right. No. Was it number? Was it a centre-back? Yeah. And number four was the defensive midfielder? No, I think that's in Italy. I think in the UK, number six has always been the defensive midfielder. I don't think that's true. I think it is. But I'm going to look it up. Do look it up. Um... Anyway, originally, it originated with uh, shirt numbers, which you were just given. Often your name wasn't on the shirt, uh, and it, you didn't keep the number either. Like you might, If you weren't playing one game, your six that you won, wore last week would be worn by whoever was playing that role. Are you, are you ready to... Yeah, so in England, a central midfielder more defensive was a four. Oh, so they switch. <clears throat> it's confusing, though, because they just swap those around. Well, this is the point, that they're different in different countries. So where, what country, am I thinking of the Italian version? Um, so why do, because the six, where does the six come from? <coughs> He's, you know what, he's asked a banging question, we don't know the answer. No, we do, so a six is, for example, a six in Germany is a defensive midfielder. A six in Italy, in Argentina is generally more of a defensive midfielder. So in England, it would go, in a 4-4-2 in England, it would go one two, 
five four three seven eight four eleven nine ten. I mean, for people listening, that is. <laughs> Oh yes, <laughs> we are on video. Also, you Sorry. can watch us on YouTube. Um, that was, can, that's can we? I'm almost egregiously unhelpful. Uh, a central defensive midfielder who had wore the number four. Why? Uh, just I'm just trying to think of one now. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying it, that isn't real. I'm just saying I'm questioning. I'm trying to think of a, 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 Brit, a, a play for a British club, a central defensive midfielder who was a number four. <laughs> I mean, nowadays it's <laughs> it's less. Actual shirt numbers don't really correlate to anything. But Some of them do. But I think it's it's become a shorthand so that that sounded an awful lot like something turning off. No, it was just the, right. it was just the thing. So it's so for example, we we've made a video for the Bundesliga uh, on the number six position, by which they mean a defensive midfielder, and what we've looked at is the fact that within that position of defensive midfielder i.e the central midfielder who is more close closer to the defensive line you get a number of different ways of playing that position so you might have uh-huh. a tiago alicantra who plays a lot of passes you've got a diego demo who's more destructive you know so it, in that respect it can be useful to say this guy is a six but he's a six of this particular type the video will have just come out by the way the weekend before you're listening to this uh, on the bundesliga yeah, youtube channel it's coming out like friday night into saturday morning yeah so go and watch that also because it explains uh, as it relates to germany the i six. think i think there's also a, quite an interesting point is that by and large there are only a few positions it's okay just keep going we're gonna have to do so i just why who shouts when they're walking down a corridor there, there aren't... Should that- we leave that in just to show the audience actually how angry we are most of the time? Sure. <laughs> Normally, you'll be able to hear or see that. That face that Alex just made or the tone of voice that you heard that you've heard only once before when your father was very, very upset with you, that happens all day. And normally I'm just here going... <laughs> but it's a little insight into the TIFO, poorly, poorly, poorly placed TIFO office. It's not that many positions that actually get that number assignation to it. So I, I think you probably would hear people talking about a number 10. Goalkeeper. And you probably, yeah, number one, yeah. And I think you probably 13, get it right? um, with people talking about sixes because there are, generally speaking, a number of different ways to play. And, and I think also a defensive midfielder, or an attacking midfielder, kind of a 10, are often the creative fulcrums of the team, depending on how that team plays. It's not often, for example, like a number seven who will be the most creative, in inverted commas, player for a team. They might get the most assists because they're crossing the ball a lot, but that's not how we think of creativity. Can I also say that I think something that initially shifted the number thing, but then also has brought it back into significance, has been uh, player branding. So, for example... At Anthony Martial, when he was number nine when he first arrived, that was taken away by Lukaku. But he had just, poor old Martial, had just launched his AM9 brand, mm. which he had to lose when he became number 11. He's brought it back now, but there is something uh, significant to his uh, personal commercial brand about being a number nine, well, I, I as think, it was with Ronaldo. Even when yeah. he moved to Real Madrid, he kept seven. Because There's a of prestige. The significance. There's a prestige. There? But it kind of it relates more to it in that way as well. And I, I think, for example, if you look at, at sevens at Manchester United, mm. you know, you've had George Best, you've had Eric Cantona, you've had David Beckham. So that You've the, had Antonio Valencia. Yeah. Was he a seven? He became seven when Ronaldo left, and I think it buckled his confidence. Right. And then he gave the because, number away. Because I genuinely think there is something, you know, certain yeah. clubs oh, no. have associations to certain shirt numbers. Totally. And I, and I think Obviously, this is irrespective of, of role, but it, it kind of, it does, shirt numbers are more interesting than you would think is kind of the point I'm trying to make. I mean, Antonio Valencia is, was the captain of his, of his national team, right? Yeah. Uh, and who is, uh, seems to be quite a quiet player who leads by example rather than vocally. He must be one of United's longest serving players now. I think he's left now, hasn't he? Has he? I thought he left in the summer. I'm okay. not sure. I, I don't know. Either way, he's, I mean, not, he's not been playing. But. No, he he had, he had a long term injury. Yeah, um, yeah, he he will be one of the United senior players. You have a quick check of that while I'm talking. But uh, <coughs> I mean, the story was that it it, it, it yeah it, it it he found it difficult. I think personally to find the confidence to live up to the shirt 
uh, number. Yeah, he's now he's now back in Ecuador playing for LDU Quito. Well, good luck to but him. But he was at United for a decade and made well over 200 appearances for them. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, listen, Jamal, uh, I hope we've answered your question. Go look at and, the Bundesliga video. And more, video. I think we gave Jamal bonus yeah. material. Though. Well, we gave him answers to a question he didn't ask, but that's fine. Uh, Michael Metcalf. If Man City, with their fullbacks tucking into defensive midfield, can be said to resemble a kind of super modern pyramid formation in possession, 2 3 5 ish, um, could it be at least theoretically viable for a team to deploy a similarly super modern WM formation? And our WM formation uh, was something that, if you read about, uh, if you read Jonathan Wilson's work, for example, you will note uh, existed in uh, the uh, early British football for a long time. It was the Dominant formation that all football teams by use. Herbert Chapman in response to a change in the offside law in 1925. How do we know that? Because it was in our quiz. It was in the TFO football quiz. We will be doing another one of those, dude. Those, dude? The, the quiz questions are on. Tw- I posted them all on Twitter, by the way. So if you go, if you look at my Twitter handle, you'll find mm. firstly without answers and then very helpfully with answers. So if you'd like to have a look at that, please do. When we were looking at this question beforehand, I said, they kind of do play like that, don't they? And you said, no, they play in a WW formation. And I said, win-win. That's about yeah. as long as we can comfortably pause I for. I think so. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, there definitely are teams that play... Three four three, and have a player, for example, who I'm thinking of someone like uh, Connor Cody at Wolves, for example, who is the centre most of three centre backs, but who will carry the ball forwards into what is what used to be called the halfback position. Mm. So in in the in the two three five and in a WM, the centre most of that second line was called the halfback and let's just explain again what a, what a wm is so we've got a goalkeeper who doesn't count as part of that yeah right? then the You've the got... m is the bottom yeah if we're looking at the team as in the strikers are at the top of the formation and the defenders are at the bottom your w at the top i.e you have three <coughs> forward players two in wide positions one kind of traditional number nine behind them you've got two advanced midfielders which is the w Right, I mean that is kind of what Man City are doing. I I would say not because the the Man City bottom half is that. Have I confused that? Then have I got that wrong? It no, looks no, no, like a WM. The, the way you've done it is correct. So it's 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 a W on top and it's an M at the bottom. So it's a bit like three up front in so a line, a three, three at the back, two, and then a two, square three. in the middle. Yeah, exactly that. But that's what Man City play. Well, it's not really. It is because they have they have they have Sterling normally on the left. They have Aguero in the middle. They have another wide player on the right. Yep. Sometimes Bernardo Silva. They have uh, De Bruyne and um, David Silva in yeah, those so the, two. The leading. top looks very much like a W, absolutely. But then the, the bottom does appear to be an M at the moment because I know because of their left back issue. Who's their left back that's injured at the moment? I can't think of his name. Mendy. Is it Benjamin Mendy? Yeah, he's injured at the moment. So I think um, because. Uh, Kyle Walker is playing a lot. Kyle Walker is more comfortable as a centre-back than he is as a central midfielder. So Guardiola is playing a WM at the moment while he has... Now, uh, Kyle Walker's issues. a right-back. I know Kyle Walker is a right-back. I'm saying as as his responsibility as a right-back, yeah. he would either be going to invert into the midfield yeah. uh, to assist there, or he would be going into centre-back. And Guardi- I've read this in a Michael Cox article. Guardiola found that Kyle Walker was less comfortable inverting into the central midfield area. So instead, for the time being, while Mendy is injured... Uh, he uses Kyle Walker to to add in from his right back position as a third centre back when the left back Zinchenko does go forwards and inverts inside. So you have a W. Okay, if that's what they're doing, that that does make sense. Do you know where I read that? It's on the Athletic. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, the classic City thing is that you have your your two centre backs, you have your full backs who push up and tuck inside a bit, and then Fernandinho or Rodri is that central defensive midfielder. It's and a that, temporary that solution. That does make yeah. a classic WW. Yeah, it, so it's a temporary solution at the moment as a result yeah. of a left-back injury. Yes. How fascinating. I mean, I, I definitely think that it it is something that you can have. The issue, the issue with a WM is that you have a lack of natural defensive width. So you're either asking the centre-backs to split wide and cover the full-back channel, in which case you can either have a central centre-back who becomes isolated 
or one of those two defensive midfielders is dropping back so regularly that you might as well play a back four. That's why I liked what Hoffenheim did with the pendulum swinging thing. Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. They had what? Like, Do you know who else did that? Who did that? Hyth and Dibden. Really? When I went to watch them against uh, Winchester wow. City the other week. But I really like the idea that if, if the centre-backs, you've got three of them, they're in trouble, the left-back pulls back and the right-back goes forwards and you sort of move in a swinging pendulum yeah. action well, and so you what, always have four at the back. What Hyth and Dibden did was they, they played as a, and I've never seen this before, but I'm sure somebody else has, they, they played as a, a flat-back four in a low block, but then when they attacked only one of the full-backs would push high, yeah. almost to play as a wide midfielder. Both fullbacks would do it, but only ever once at the same time. Yeah. And then they would look to play that because they were playing a kind of wide three at the front. So you would always have a slightly imbalanced thing, but it, it meant that there were always three at the back because the other fullback would tuck inside. But then when they went into a low block, they were actually a back four. Mm. And, it, and it actually worked really well to start with. Do you know who used to do that? Who? Alex Ferguson. Really? You never, you were never allowed, Gary Neville was never allowed to go up with Dennis Irwin at the same time. Luckily, oh, Dennis yeah, Irwin never went up. I don't think they went up as high and I don't think Dennis Irwin was nearly as attacking. Yes. I mean, were you were looking at... It's a modern version. Right. Mm. But it was interesting. So yeah, I, th- I think, look, I think a Dennis w- Irwin was cool, wasn't he? I think Dennis Irwin's one of the most underrated players of the Premier League era. Cool guy. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I, he, I sort of wish he was my uncle or something. Yeah. Mm. He always seems like somebody who should have been in a band like Dire Straits. The Irwinites. You know, just he's got that kind of... He's, he reminds... For some reason, he it makes me tough. think of John Deacon, the Queen bass player. Okay. Next question is from Emmanuel Adibayor, who asks questions quite a lot. But they're good. This one isn't, though, Emmanuel. Come on. I don't like this question, and I'm reading it out to shame you. Without overthinking it or bringing stats into the mix. Who does Alex think is the... But not only does he write that stupid question, but he asks you specifically, and not me, as if I don't know anything. Uh, I don't. Who does Alex think is the best player in the world after Messi and Ronaldo? Now listen, Emmanuel Adebayor. You can't ask a TIFO a question saying don't overthink it or bring stats in, because that's all we do. If we didn't overthink it and bring stats in, we'd be Arsenal fan TV. And also... That's rude, isn't it? A little bit. Didn't mean to be so rude. But I mean, maybe they are overthinking it. That's rude. Oh God, I've been bitter and rude in the same episode. Also, what's to say that I think Ronaldo and Messi are the two best players in the world anyway? Well, that's just true. Well... Messi Maybe not is. now. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I mean, it's a, I suppose the point of putting this question in is to say that it's it's pointless me even saying an answer. Oh, don't shame him because, too much. No, well, I no, was doing it in a joking I, no, way. I You're mean, making I, it I so am, serious. I am going to give an answer. I'm going to give two answers, actually. Be nice to Emmanuel Adebayor. But, but I, I love Emmanuel Adebayor. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that you have the realms of subjectivity mean that it depends what it is you enjoy about football no. that, that means you are interested in no. who the best player is. No. To me, it, it does. It's not that. I think it is. It's who can win you the most games. Well, I mean, that's a different question. That's why right? they're all goal scorers. Yeah, but you see, that's that's a silly approach to take. Why? Because it's not necessarily the person who scores the most goals who wins you games. It might be your goal. I think it is. I don't think it is. I think there's a consensus that scoring goals in top level football is the hardest thing to do. I think keeping clean sheets is the hardest thing to do. Uh, so I, so I would say, I, I would say that, that perhaps the most important player, or if, if I were building a team from scratch, uh-huh. the first player I would get would be Jan Oblak. Okay. Who I you think, don't want Anana. Huh? You don't want Ajax's goalkeeper. He's great. Yeah, he's great, but he's not as good. Okay. But but so to me, my my favourite two players would be, or who I think are the best in the world, are probably Oblak and Angola Kante. Because I think they're... You're such a contrarian. I mean, I, I can see the erection underneath the desk as you say this. I don't it's think you so can. ridiculous. 
Just stop. You can't say that. I can. It, it's I, outrageous, I can, even for what I've you normally it. are like. This ridiculous. And I've done it. I think. I think a goalkeeper and a central defensive midfielder are the best players in the world. Yep. Of course, you would. Th- I'm not even. I'm going to move on. That's ridiculous. If anyone agrees with Alex, though, you know, do let him know. He'd love that because what he'll do anyway is he'll wait for someone to tweet him saying you were right, and he'll come in and show me and go, see, it proves it because the internet said so. Uh, the next question is from uh, Chinta Prakash. Why are many big clubs under such huge financial debt? What does it exactly mean? Who are they accountable to? Well, there's a lot of different questions there. Uh, well, there's three. Um, I don't. I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? Basically, it's all relative. Is the answer? Uh, because a good example of this is Manchester United. The reason that they are a good example is because when the Glazers bought Manchester United, what, 12 years ago, 11 years ago, something like that, they used a financial instrument called an LBO, a leveraged buyout. Essentially, they borrowed money that they didn't have to buy the club, and then they put that money against the club. So they essentially put Manchester United into £700 million worth of debt and just kind of took the keys and walked in for free. If you've got enough money and you've got enough suction with the you know suckers at the bank, you can do that kind of thing. It's the equivalent, I think, of saying, hmm, I like that ice cream van right there. Um, what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the bank and I'm going to say, if you let me buy the ice cream van... I will give you all of the value of the actual ice cream van, but not me. I could walk away whenever I want and sell that and have all the money. Um, and uh, it, normal people like us aren't allowed to do that. Mm. Well, I guess it's kind of a mortgage. But, I mean, it sort of is a mortgage in a way. But it's, the, the it's difference is there's like not a mortgage, but then but there's it's... no commercial commerciality to the house in the same no, way. You're not making that... money from the house. And you can't just leave the house in debt. No. No one would... Yeah. Anyway, the point is, uh, that was a big problem for Manchester United over various years, over, over several years. But at the same time, Ed Woodward became the executive chairman, you know, sucked the soul out of that football club, uh, but made it very commercially successful. And then at the same time, the Premier League television rights boomed all the way up. And now Manchester United are in a position where, while originally their interest payments that they had to make on those loans were enormous, and they were, I think at one point they were £60 million a year. You're talking about taking money out of the transfer kitty then. Now, I think the interest payments that they have to make annually, or at least two years ago, they were £20 million a year. When you're a club like Manchester United and you have as much money as they do, it's essentially nothing. So it's it, the debt doesn't concern them and... Whilst it shouldn't currently concern fans, the way in which it was accumulated is obviously of concern. So there are two different things to say there. One is the club don't need to be financially worried in the same way that they did 10 years ago, but they the fans should be really fucked off. <laughs> and that still counts, you know. Uh, so no, they have huge debt. Theoretically, I think it's still... 400 million or something but it doesn't matter it doesn't impact them financially in the market in the same way that it might do for a normal person who are they accountable to whoever they borrowed it from normally that is a collection of banks if you're borrowing that much money normally you borrow it from uh, three different banks for example they're also accountable to shareholders sure which is a, a major major difference in football now to football 20 or 30 years ago is that a lot of these clubs are publicly listed um and that, that shareholders can hold a club to account on the basis of a lack of results, either financial or performance on the pitch, things, you know, that that's why if there are rumours about a certain manager, a club's share price might fall and so on. Um, I, think, I think it's worth reiterating your point, though, that to a financial institution as big as a football club... Well, at the top level. At the top level. Um, often, debt is not the issue. The issue is interest on the debt. And to be honest, in business at that size anyway, debt is not considered a problem like it is. Debt is considered a way of working. It's not considered, it's not like I've got a five grand credit card debt as an individual. That is a big problem for me. It's not the same thing. It is considered a way in which you well, work. It's sort of a big problem for you if if the interest on it is a normal credit card interest debt. But I think it's worth pointing out as well that if you're an individual who's five grand in debt, but the interest is 0.1% and you're earning, you know, lots and lots of money every month, then actually it's really not that much of a concern. 
because you know you may never have enough to pay it off in full but it's actually not impacting your pocket all of that much on a monthly basis but your position is not stable in the same way that Manchester United's is like no that's financially, true they, they will be it will take a lot longer for them to <coughs> you, you could lose your job and then you, you would could, be fucked yes, and then you'd be fucked whereas Manchester United are not going to lose their job no, but they could fail to qualify for the Champions League three seasons in a row. They could. The, the point I'm making is not to, to belittle personal mm. debt or anything. It's that the fact is that what United have done that means the debt doesn't matter so much is they've brought the interest payments down massively. Mm. And well, we that's also, the crucial element of we it. We put out a video, originally came from The Athletic actually, about Bournemouth and why they've borrowed... £16 million pounds, uh, in the aftermath of selling Tyrone Mings. Um, and it explains transfer fee factoring, which is another form of debt, but it is basically you borrow money that you expect to receive. So when they sold uh, when they sold Mings to Aston Villa, they the transfer fee was something like £25 million, but it wasn't all going to be paid up front. It was going to be paid over a couple of, or a series of years. And so instead of waiting for that money to arrive, because Aston Villa don't have it immediately to get give it out, Bournemouth go to an Australian bank and say, we are expecting this money to come in over the next two to three years. If you give us all of it now, we'll pay you a little bit of interest on that and you can just receive the money immediately when it comes from Aston Villa. So again, transfer fee factoring is not something which concerns uh, financial journalists who, who cover sport. It is, again, a kind of form of debt which is considered a way of working rather than something you do to dig yourself out of a hole. This this is also going to become increasingly the case as as transfer deals, I think, get complicated and split over seasons and have things like buyback causes in them. That sense of, you know, this, this club is contractually obligated to pay my club £20 million across the course of three years. I am therefore going to go and leverage that their debt by talking to a financial services company who will give me that twenty million pounds now. This is what an NBA player is doing at the moment. I right. can't remember his name, but it's a big story because he has asked his club, I think it's the Nets, he's got a twenty six million dollar contract over three years or something, and he has made an arrangement with the club whereby he will receive not all of that full amount, but slightly less, let's call it twenty million dollars in a digital token up front, it saves the club money because they're not paying him all out in one go. And he then invests his money that he gets up front from his contract to make more than he would have in the first place. Hmm. And I, I think it has been tried before in a few other sports. I don't think it's ever happened in the NBA before, but it's the sort of thing you can imagine footballers cottoning onto. Yeah. Let's say Ronaldo made that move to Juventus five years time from now. It might be that he says, pay me a little bit less, pay me all up front in this digital token and I will make my own investments. You save money. I make more money than I would have. You can totally see it going that way. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, uh, two more questions. Uh, Noah Cole, how does Dwight McNeil benefit Burnley? That's Dwight a, McNeil. That's a shift, isn't it? Yeah, Dwight McNeil. How does he benefit Burnley? Well, um, how does Burnley benefit Dwight McNeil? That's what Dwight wants to know. Well, because he he's playing regularly. He's receiving at a salary. His yeah. age, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is something as well. How old is he? He's nineteen, I think. One of those kids. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely not one of those kids in that way. Yes, he is nineteen. He was born on the twenty second of the eleventh, nineteen ninety nine. Um, how does he benefit them? Burnley, I'm going to give quite a short answer to this. Burnley are obviously a side that are very system orientated, extremely hardworking, well organized, all of these cliches. And one of the things that teams, in order to elevate themselves when they're like that, need is somebody who can do something a little bit different every once in a while. And he looks like he might be that player or at least develop into that player. What's he doing that's different? Um, he's very good at crossing. He's does, when he sits in the more, toilet, does he straddle it instead of sitting like other people? He's a bit more direct. Have you, have you seen that episode of South Park? It's no. good. Did you know that South Park is coming to Netflix? No. Oh my God. I just cancelled my Netflix subscription as well. Okay. And now I'm going to have to get it back. Cool. Um, so he's more of an attacking threat. His uh, expected goals and assists is sort of around league average or was last season, which for a player of his age is very promising. The key thing about Dwight McNeil is that despite offering a bit more of an attacking threat and something a little more different creatively from the left than Burnley are used to, 
he doesn't diminish their defensive capabilities. He works extremely hard. He's very, very good at, at what are called pressure regains. So basically getting the ball back because you run after it, uh, tackling that kind of stuff. So he, he doesn't upset the way that Deich wants to play, but he adds a dimension which just gives them a little bit extra that means maybe they can do something slightly more interesting. Could you say that he adds a Deich mention? Would you, could you say that? Yes. Uh, I've said it. Noah Cole, I hope that answers your question. Rutger van Aachen. Giorgio Chiellini has talked about the Guardiolification of defending with too many coaches trying to play out from the back, which can lead to massive mistakes being made from the back. Uh, there is a Dutch team with a 10 million euro selection trying to mimic Man City and it's ruining Anderlecht too. Our coach is trying too hard to... <coughs> our coach... <coughs> Thank you. Our coach is trying too hard to play pretty football and building up from the back without having the quality in their selection to do so. Um, not really. I don't think. Um, I, I think if you take Anderlecht as an example, and obviously they're a particularly interesting example because Vincent Company was their head coach until he sort of found this weird hybrid role thing that he's now doing. What's he doing now? <clears throat> he's a sort of player coach but with somebody else helping him out i think i think he stepped down from like overall head coach position it's a bit confusing and now he's a player coach well no he was always a player manager he was a player manager but he was the out and out manager and i think oh. there's now someone there assisting him a dual role kind of yeah mm. this is what i i think i read a while back anyway the point being that obviously he worked with guardiola so there is a particular expectation that he would play in a certain style. Now, the thing with Anderlecht is that they've been really, really unlucky. So everything about them actually indicates at least a sort of top six side. And in terms of their passing and their progressive passing, passing that moves the ball forwards, uh, you know, successfully a certain distance or bisecting a certain number of players, they're actually really right towards the top of, of the Belgian top tier. So you can't infer from the difficulties that Anderlecht have had necessarily that this way of defending and this style isn't working. There are other reasons and luck is one of those. They should be on considerably more points and have scored almost twice as many goals as you would expect from what they've actually done. Um, overall, I think that there is a general trend towards footballers being more versatile. And I think... As part of that, centre-backs are now expected to be able to pass the ball a certain way, carry the ball a certain way, and some players will, you know, take, for example, John Stones. People will will latch on to the errors that he's made when he's playing his natural game and say, oh, he's a liability. Is, is this not actually, like, literally the first video that we ever did? First ever TIFO video. Right, okay. So go back and watch that, because it's right in the annals. Oh, of don't, it. because I feel like I, uh, okay, he, he made some very bad mistakes Do in the we last are, game. I think we are nine videos short of 700 on the channel. Are we? Yeah. We also passed 80 million views the other day. Uh, okay. It's exciting, isn't That's it? That's cool. Um, um, is that, yeah. Are you done? No, no. So oh, I was going to say, I, I, look, I, d I don't think, I don't think defenders passing it out is anything new. I look at how Alan Hansen played for Liverpool. Um, I don't think Guardiola is the only res coach responsible for asking defenders to play out. I think players are getting more well-rounded and are capable of doing more generally. So it's natural that that defenders would expand their skill sets and look to play more progressively. And I don't think that's the reason that Andelected are doing particularly badly so sorry to sort of shit all over a question but come well, on Rutger you know I think how, you're wrong how dare you Rutger <laughs> thanks for the question Rutger hey I've got a question yeah what sets modern German coaching apart being it's not for you the organized. question isn't for you oh right Harding's deep dive into the humanity at the heart of talent development in Germany leaves you feeling hugely optimistic about the future of football, says Raphael Honigstein, who was on last week's podcast. Uh, I'm announcing, well, I hope it works because we have got a date for this. Um, Alex and I aren't here next week, but Seb is. And Seb, I'm hoping, is going to be speaking to Jonathan Harding, the writer of the book. This is a really, really good book. Mensch. Really, really good book. The book Mensch, Beyond the Cones. And I'm thinking ice cream, but no, it's about football. God damn it. God damn it. They're so tricky, aren't they? 
But anyway, um, I uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be here for that one, but I'm very much looking forward to listening to Jonathan Harding talking to Seb next week. So do uh, listen to that. It'll be out uh, a week on, I don't know, the Tuesday of whenever, I don't know, in a week's time. And uh, do that's all the questions. Thank you to everyone who wrote in and asked us those. You make it very easy to create an hour of content, and you'll ha- you have no idea how grateful we are on days like this when we're busy for that. So thank you. Um, thanks, Alex. Thank you. Just Joe. a quick note for listeners about Alex as well. I've been thinking this over the last few minutes. I just want you all to know that uh, for those of you watching, Alex only has his hair like this when he's on the podcast. By the way, it's all it's all a lie. He just five minutes beforehand, he ruffles it all up, goes into the bathroom, and he ruffles it all up and comes out looking like that, like he used I've to be in the cure. A, I've had a hat on, all and day. then yeah, 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 and then uh, and then as soon as the podcast is over, he uh, he this, puts it all right, back down I've been again. Wearing, like a I've been wearing person. a hat like this. And then I took it off and it naturally bunches my hair <laughs> no, up. No, no, no. This is, this is untrue. Listen, believe, this is believe, what you, believe what you want is fine. I just want you to know that he does go into the bathroom and do that before. <laughs> I don't. Anyway, we'll be back next week with uh, Jonathan Harding. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Charizard Kiare. I'm a Gemini Pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. (laughs) That's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be good all time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe.